None of the three hosts of Friendly Fire grew up in China or in families of Chinese background. And today's film features a lot of people and place names that contain sounds that are unfamiliar to us. I say that just to make sure it's understood that if we pronounce anything wrong on today's show, it's because we're bad people who tried to be wrong because we like getting corrected on Reddit. Now, with that out of the way, if you didn't grow up in China, you, like us, might not be super familiar with Chinese history. It is long, complicated, and impressive. This is a huge country that has more or less considered itself to be one big country for a very long time. There is some archaeological evidence suggesting dynastic rule dates back as far as 2100 BCE. Now, the dynasties controlled most of what we now consider to be the borders of China, but occasionally in this long history, China has not been a single country, but a collection of states, which occasionally went to war with each other. And wars are the things that movies get made about, and then we talk about it on Friendly Fire. Literally all of Chinese history has been leading to this moment. Now, today's film is about the dawn of an era called the Three Kingdoms. In 208 CE, Cao Cao, a bigwig in the falling Han Dynasty, tried to obliterate any military threat to the continued unification of China by bringing a 200,000-man army down the Yangtze River to crush two allied warlords who were not on board with the way Cao Cao was running the country. It's simply the story of how the allied army, just 50,000 in number, were able to repel Cao Cao and create an environment in which China was separated into three independent states. This is a John Woo film from 2008 CE, so you're not going to be surprised to hear that it is big, stylish, and exciting. Wu is the master Hong Kong filmmaker who came to the U.S. to give us beloved classics such as Broken Arrow, Face Off, and not to mention Wind Talkers, which is on the war movie list, and Hard Target, which is not. In setting out to depict the Battle of Red Cliffs, he returned to China and amassed an enormous cast and $160 million in order to make a sweeping two-part epic spanning nearly five hours in total runtime. Now, what we watch today is not quite what was released in China, because what we have in the West is uh, what was easiest to access. It's a cut-down of these two installments that was released as a single film, with the comparatively humane runtime of about two and a half hours. Uh, that means John will only have to refill his tub twice to get through this film. It's a film that will really put Friendly Fire through its paces. We're watching a culture grapple with its own history from a contemporary standpoint. And what does it mean that John Woo, a director from Hong Kong, which at the time of this recording is experiencing a political backlash against the totalitarian government of mainland China, is making a film about the subdivision of China? Surely the censors from the ruling party of that country wouldn't permit the financing and release of a film that they felt was subversive or seditious, so how does this period, deep in the ancient past, fit into the way modern China thinks about itself? And how China would like the rest of the world to think about it? This film was a giant hit, and not just in China. While its U.S. box office numbers were measured in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, the worldwide gross was a massive $250 million. And China is really starting to make an intentional push into the international market with film. So don't think this is just a Chinese film for a Chinese market. 
We'll do our best to address all of that, not to mention all the cool ancient battle tactics the film depicts. From repeating crossbows to troop formations, this film really has it all. And we can't wait to get into it. Truth and illusion are often disguised as each other today on Friendly Fire as we discuss Red Cliff. Welcome to Friendly Fire. On Dragons in the Wind, I take flight. Under one war movie podcast, the world unites. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. That was nice. This was a hard movie to take notes on because it is subtitled and very fast-paced. There's a lot going on in this movie. Every time I look down to like write something down, I, uh, I missed a, a major plot point. Oh, no. Yeah, I had, to, I had to rewind a ton. It was a four-hour movie that was cut down to be a two-hour movie, and still yeah, they cut there were over <laughs> two hours out of this out of the two movies to make one movie. Still, there wasn't there was a lot of time where uh, <laughs> where it was like, huh? I feel like they could have shaved this a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it feels very like movie trailer at the beginning. I was like, oh, maybe the beginning is what they cut everything out of. But the midpoint is actually kind of the midpoint in the in the two films. Like the, I think the part one ends before the biological warfare attack right. starts. So it is an epic movie. It is an epic movie. I wonder how we would feel about so many other films that we thought were too long had they been also been cut down in the same way. Like cut those films by 30 to 40%. What do you think we'd get? I kind of like the effect here. I like this. Not having seen the original version, I think I like the version of Red Cliff that we watched for this. I, I liked it. I liked it I mean, too. I'm all for cutting movies. Like, I I think movies are too long in general. What What if uh, Kill Bill 1 and 2 had been cut into one movie? Would you have liked it better or liked it less? I could see a good a good cut down of that. I just saw Adventures and Games, and I felt like the first hour and a half that were just establishing that all the characters were really sad about what happened in the last movie was basically useless. So that seemed like it could have been a tight 90 minutes. Well, one of the things that's going to make this difficult uh, to talk about today with any kind of unified clarity is that there are 50 main actors... (laughs) <laughs> and uh, their names are Chinese, and the actors' names are Chinese in most cases, and in some cases Japanese. I mean, I know who everybody is, but I'm at a loss to say, uh, to pronounce or even recall any actual names. I mean, I can describe the characters, but yeah, boy, I'm, I'm going to have a real hard time because my Chinese is already on the ropes. Fairly remedial, <laughs> but it is like it's going to be one of those episodes where we say we're doing the best we can. Yeah, there are a, yeah, a lot of I names. Think, that I think our with. pronunciations are going to be bad, and then also our ability to because because also like I, I mean in a film like Ron and or Ran, uh, like every 
like if if you have allegiance to one thing like your color palette is super specific to that thing you know like there's the the red team and the blue team and and yellow team and the black team on in that movie and i feel like the just distinguishing uniforms and and helmets and stuff in this movie is way more difficult super difficult three uh, three of the four uh you know, main generals all have names that start with ZH and I would, we could do an hour and a half of me just trying to figure out how ZHO <laughs> and ZHU and Z, ZHA are different from one another. Cow cow is easy. Cow cow. All of this to indicate yeah. we do not understand Chinese. Right. Uh, even fundamentally. Yeah. And I wondered watching this cause this is the, this is the, the cut down westernized release of this film. And every character gets like a really major intro plate where they, you know, their name and their and their job title are up on screen next to their face, uh, which was their win loss record. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. their Some ERA, their, their their stats. Yeah, <laughs> the music that they come up to the plate to. Yeah, it was it was almost a pro wrestling level of each general steps out into the ring. And, and right. has his own five minute long like solo ballet where he he which is a very John Woo idea. Yeah, it was it like, was he would do hilarious. that in, in a film that he did in Hollywood, too. But I wondered, did they do that in the Korean release of this movie? Do they need to do that? Or are the is this a well known enough story that like people will pick up, pick it up as as they go? Because also the like all that uh, voiceover is is added in for our benefit. We're watching a movie that is half as long as the original release. I'm sure each general got plenty of that spotlight <laughs> treatment, and 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 because there's no other, because there wasn't a voiceover, I bet you there were subtitled like like cards for each guy. I mean, this yeah. is a this is a, a super well known foundational uh, allegory myth in not and not myth but like this is this is their um you know this is their king arthur this is their uh um their uh their and uh, alexander the great kind of epic based, based on real people who would be well known but i don't think you're that's sort of that's sort of does, does this sort of serve the the same function that genghis khan might in mongolia where well, I, I think it would depend, right? Because this movie was gigantic all across Asia. So for Koreans or Japanese or, you know, uh, even Taiwanese, this these stories would be fairly remote compared to how, what a large role they would play for someone that lived in Shanghai. So, and, and you know, and you would have to be a pretty educated person in any place to remember the names of 20 generals of a battle that happened 1700 years ago. <laughs> so <laughs> you would have to be fairly educated to remember one, I think. And one of the questions I had when I watched this film was like, is it racist that, you know, when we study world history and the history of, of conflicts around the world, how little, Western audiences know about Asian war and Asian warfare throughout history. Like it feels like when the history books begin in junior high or early high school, it's like Napoleon and all of the wars of Europe. But you read very little about 
wars in China or Japan. And I know personally, I knew nothing of this conflict before seeing the movie. And I thought, I, I wondered why. Is, is that why? I think it's not racist. It's regional uh, in the sense that I doubt your average person in China knows that much about the American Civil War or even maybe even the the Huns or anything. You know, like right. the thing about the wars in China is that they were the, the, the Chinese empires were all confined to China other than Genghis Khan. Like none of these the, the Han dynasty didn't try to conquer Hungary at any point. And so what makes Alexander the Great, for instance... Would they have called it Hungary if they had? Hmm. <laughs> I'm feeling a little hangry right now. <laughs> but, you know, like the Alexander the Great or, um, or Genghis Khan, like these are places where empires clashed. And so they're remembered on both side of that that. that divide right but mm -hmm. i mean it, this is also such ancient history ancient like, right this is roman times greek times. I, i'm looking at the three kingdoms wikipedia page and there's a, a an animated gif of china and like the different subdivisions <laughs> within it <laughs> uh, like starting in like the 100s and going through the 200s common era 200s and <laughs> it's I mean, it paints a picture of like very a very active like set of imperial powers. There are three three different countries essentially. And if you if you were to, if you look at a map of Europe where you see this kind of dynastic struggle where where there's a big empire, you know, like a time lapse map where there's a big empire and then it shrinks and then there's a, it splinters into fifteen empires and then they're gobbled up by something else. You know, that's yeah. having that's happening in Europe in medieval times, but we don't even know what was happening in Europe in 200 AD. It was just barbarians and unchristianized German tribes like like we were. Uh, and when I say we, I a lot mean, of red bads running around <laughs> when, when when Europe was at uh, during this time period, it's like in some in a lot of ways, not not exactly prehistory but yeah kind of i mean by uh, at, at the time that china was already a pretty epic civilization it, when, when they were red cliff we were red bed wow <laughs> uh, there, that's a there's a dialectic for you <laughs> like everybody in this movie professes loyalty to the emperor despite their willingness to go to war with each other over control over their territory like the accusation against cow cow is that he is he's doing this for himself and not for the emperor and therefore like fighting him is an act of patriotism right essentially right and he is saying that even at the even in the very end of the movie as he's as he's up against the wall sword to his neck he's saying bow before me because he still thinks of himself as the representative of the of the emperor whom they all recognize, but that emperor is completely ineffectual and has no, I mean, it's just symbolic and everyone knows he's symbolic. Now he's got that beaded curtain in front of his face, you know, right? How, how seriously can you take a guy like that? Hard to, hard to even see through it to know what he's doing. Yeah. Well, what's he doing? Smoking reefer back there? <laughs> <laughs> like the story is so old, but the idea of a general controlling his emperor in this way 
and and pitching the idea of a war of adventure the way that Cow Cow does. It, it like you see this throughout history, right? Like Cow Cow's yeah. reason is that these people to the south are people that we have not subjugated for whatever reason. Don't you want to go for blackout bingo? Like that's it. Like there's no other reason than to just do it for doing its sake. These people haven't done anything to them. I think it's also that they're always trying to recapture past glory. These southern tribes aren't just something they encounter they recently encountered. It's like that used to right. be part of this and that belongs to this and like the and I, I don't I didn't understand from this and I don't understand still like how the warlords and the emperor maps over to kind of the prince duke uh viscount world of Europe <laughs> right. that I also don't know very don't understand very well. It's all just like fancy terms for guys who got a big army and took over a bunch of shit. Right, guys who are running some area. Viscount is just a, a thicker king, right? It's a better for lubricating an engine. Right. You don't get thermal breakdown with a, with a Viscount on the throne. I recently found out that my wife would prefer to be with a thick king, so... Mm. Anyway, w- once we get into the movie, once it's established who the who the baddies are... Then it becomes like a like a political thriller and yeah. a and like a total war movie. I mean, everything yeah. about yeah. this is a war movie, it's, and it's everything from the generals in the in the tents with maps, like do- discussing their the tactics that they might employ for a, a upcoming battle, down to like the guys on the ground actually putting that battle plan into action. We don't ever. There's not one soldier. And I think I read that some of the stuff that got cut out, at least of the second half, when uh, the princess, like Princess Spy, um, when she's over disguised as an enemy soldier and sending messages back with her carrier pigeon, apparently she actually had a developed a friendship with one of Cow Cow's soldiers. Mm. And we see at the very end of the movie, she's kneeling on the battlefield kind of mourning. And it's a little bit like, right. Why are you so sad? Unclear. (laughs) She's, she's, she's kneeling on a field where 300,000 bodies are, are on fire. But apparently (laughs) like, but this guy, (laughs) you're, you're, you're bent out of shape about this one, this one guy. Apparently everything else about that guy got cut out, but they left in that scene of her mourning his death. So other than that, there were 1500 extras, like the Chinese military provided 1500 soldiers to like build all the shit and then play extras in in the scenes. I mean, a movie like this where you have real live extras in that quantity is so cool. It's so cool. You have men everywhere and it's rad. This movie makes the case that the generals are way better at combat than normal soldiers. Like anytime one of the generals like gets like down off of his observation platform or or rides his horse into the fray, he's taking out like dozens and dozens of guys at once while uh while like normal soldiers are you know like and I I wonder I wonder if there's some truth to that. Like, do do the nobility have like very advanced combat training that they, you know, are raised with, and therefore, 
do actually stand a better chance in a close quarters sword and spear battle. That's the whole philosophy of the knight. The fact that they're born into military families, that they train from a young age in combat. You see this depicted a little bit. You see Zhao Yu practicing his sword fighting in a couple of scenes in this film in the off time. Makes me wonder if if the nobility has that time while the while the rest of the troops are busy building their encampments. They don't have yeah. time for those things. Traditionally, maybe and this is something that we have covered tangentially in this show since the inception, uh, the idea that fighting prowess is connected to or maybe even synonymous with virtue as a as a male quality throughout history. Right. So honor on the battlefield and and just like fighting strength and skill are all uh I mean it's the it's the justification and it's the justification for a feudal society. Why why would we why would a duke be in charge of all these other people if he weren't superior in every way? Right. It's one of the reasons why I'm so against that the social structure is that I have no fighting prowess and therefore could never advance in uh, and therefore in no such a virtue. Society. Yeah. Yeah, and well, and I think a lot of that a lot of those traditions we have mapped onto money making and followers. Yeah, followers, right? Exactly, or prowess at a keyboard or prowess on a joystick, but but it but it it's not hard to map joystick prowess to sword prowess, especially if you ask right. a joystick jockey whether it maps. And then he tips his, his trilby hat and scratches his neckbeard. <laughs> and rides away on a white steed. <laughs> <laughs> but what I really like about this movie is that character of of Zhuge Lang, who is You're the really advisor. going for it, aren't you? You're going to Zhuge yeah, Lang us and, and I'm, I'm just going to be... I'm, I'm, I'm huffing your tailpipes here. Truth over there. This is such an interesting character because he's soft power, right? Mm. He he gets to safely advise his general and he is trusted. And he gets to actually criticize the plan as it's happening in several cases. And that's something that you never see as being a possibility over on the cow-cow side. So I was, uh, I, I was looking at IMDb while watching this because I wanted to make sure I understood who all the characters were. And this is the... Uh, the character played by Takeshi Kaneshiro, who uh, in the subtitles is, at least in the version I watched, is referred to as Kong Ming, but in IMDb he's referred to as Zhu Liang. Yeah, and then and then you go on this guy's Wikipedia page, and it tells you what his name is in Japanese, Cantonese, Mandarin, like, and this guy speaks like four or five different Chinese languages in addition to Japanese. He's a Japanese actor, uh, I guess. I, guess I, th- I think he grew up in Japan. And there was the uh, the Zhou Yu character that uh, that Tony Leung played was originally going to be Ken Watanabe. Yeah. And there were like protests against this film because 
the Chinese public did not want the, you know, the number one hero of the film to be played by a Japanese guy. It's very rare that we ever see a movie where the tactical advisor, the um, the non-combatant uh, statesman who's whispering in the ear of generals, we almost always see that character portrayed as a, as a worm tongue, a kind mm-hmm. of corrupt and corruptible mind wizard who's manipulating weaker uh, aristocrats. But in this case, he's truly the hero of the film and at a certain point toward the end starts to maybe be practicing weather magic. Right. It's portrayed as that he is sort of scientific or not scientific. It's, it's almost uh, astrological. His, his observations. If you see stringy clouds in the Southern sky on a cold night, when Venus is next day, the wind will change direction. But he actually steps out there a couple of times and like, waves his he's like the ben franklin of the film he is except he does that thing where he like he's out all by himself on the plane and he waves his goose wing and all of a sudden the literal a literal goose wing that he uses as a fan throughout the film and he he waves it around and all of a sudden the wind changes and you're like okay are we into i just interpreted him as be as doing that thing that i always do when i'm at a red light where i go and it changes <laughs> and try and like nail yeah. nail when it turns over to green yeah. you know i try and do that with my mind but there was a little bit that goose wing in particular um which again was an affectation there were a lot of his manner and affectation seemed like uh, in a different context or in a film made uh, of a different culture, he would have been portrayed as Fay, right? He's the one right. person in in the film that isn't jumping around with a sword, who doesn't have like, who's not a uh, like a hyper badass, and he's being treated as a as a peer by all of the by all of the biggest and best fighters in the film. But he just right. his only weapon is his mind and his fan. It's a hell of a combination. And he has a ton of swagger. Like Ugh. the way he carries himself is is all like super aspirational. But again, like he's not a worm tongue. He does not appear to have designs on power for himself. Right. He's only acting on behalf but he's not really acting on behalf of the Emperor either. He seems to be acting on behalf of peace and prosperity for all through millennia right it's almost like yeah who is he allied with he's just a full-on hero and not he's not a hero for any one thing but he but at the end of the movie he just takes his they give him a pony they give him a little (laughs) pony and he's like my work here is done he might be the best character of all the war movies that we've seen. And by best, I mean just the most inherently good yeah, and good at his job. Yeah. He goes and gets 100,000 arrows. Yeah. Pretty good. This, that was pretty cool. Was a God, scene. this film had so many great scenes of interesting strategy, right? And that was one of them. The, the turtle strategy also, I thought, was such a fun and interesting depiction. Yeah. I don't know. I I had a hard time imagining being on horseback and charging through some dust and then seeing a bunch of formations and deciding to ride in between them. Yeah. Yeah. They stop to look at a turtle. 
uh, Princess Badass came in and she and her little cadre shot a bunch of arrows at him. Then they rode around in circles, creating a dust storm. And I was like, okay, okay, I'm with you so far. And then the then the army <laughs> appeared out of the dust and it was like, whoa, good idea. And they, I thought that the brush, uh, the brush that they were like dragging behind their horses initially was going to be to obscure the path that their horses took. Yeah, but except the other uh, army was right on their tail. <laughs> yeah, it's it's to kick up it's to kick up dust so that they don't see the huge formation of ground troops when they come out of the dust cloud. Right, right, and it, and that would that seems like a strategy that would also only work if the wind was in your favor. But then as soon as they charge into that turtle formation and start riding their horses around and they get kind of closed off in that circle, I had no idea who was who or what was what. I came out the other side of that battle kind of baffled and at really trying, really focusing then on trying to discern whose flag was who, whose helmet was whose. Yeah. Once I stopped resisting the need to understand things on like that micro level, I enjoyed the film a lot more. And I think it was early on when I decided to just like give myself over to it and like just try to enjoy it for for what it was instead of trying to understand its its strategy on a technical level, you know? Yeah. And I think uh, your mileage is going to vary based on whether or not you can do that. Yeah, well, except... Except there was so much going on that needed to be parsed in order to get to the next level. Because I don't, I don't think I understood fully the geography of Red Cliff itself. Because there were all these feints where the army was circling around behind. And battles were happening on fields of battle elsewhere that were sort right. of determining the flank but I never got a top-down view of like exactly how those armies were marching around and from where and where they were marching to. Yeah, like the only part of the film you get an idea of their proximity or geography is when Cow Cow's Navy parks across from Red Cliff like a guy in a luxury car taking up two spaces. Like like the, the, <laughs> the close-up proximity and like the, the fuck you-ness of setting up a giant encampment right on their doorstep... Yeah. Was a really fun visual, I thought. I mean, they they do a great job of establishing that by having a dove fly f- like clear from one camp to the other to yeah. to show like every detail of what uh what is set up in between them. Except only on the water though. Never it never right. goes up around these 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 back roads. John, I'm definitely not saying I understood uh, what was happening during the battles as they were happening, but like after the battle is over, you you understand who won yeah, I see each of saying. the skirmishes. A defining characteristic of film set in this time period is definitely the wipe of an arrow off of a chest. Oh, it's a nice move. <laughs> I love that moment every time. What did you think of the battle scenes uh, like as shot and cut? Not versus, not about like who won or lost each battle, but but what did you think of them uh, in terms of, I guess, their violence and and the strategy depicted? I thought like the arrows, especially their number and their sound was scary and effective. I thought, I thought, I think one of the great things that John Woo does is 
shoot fight scenes and i thought he was at his best in those scenes in this film i mean it's like the level of technology in and this is like maybe a tiny bit more advanced than braveheart yeah. but like the the depiction of that of that kind of combat we've seen a few times now and i think that the like this is is best in breed in a lot of cases like there's a couple of like bad cg wide shots where they you know show you know the formation and and some of the some of the soldiers look very digital but uh anytime anytime you're up close or or watching one guy you know like flip off of a horse and dodge three three spears and then like pull one out of one guy and stab another guy with it and then get hit with an arrow like it's it you you follow those little vignettes perfectly. The audio really saves a bad visual, and I think this is a film that's an example of that. I think the the mix of these battle scenes was great, and I think it bailed out a lot of the visuals that maybe weren't as strong. John Woo was very upfront about um, taking liberties with the with historical record and with the way battles were fought, like that whole business of the shields being used to create this impenetrable formation. That's actually a Roman technique called the testudo formation, Mm. which means turtle. Um, But it wasn't really like a Chinese thing. It's referred to as a, as a old fashioned form, which Right. conceivably could have been if someone had taken it from the Roman Empire to China in its time and it was employed there but but I I don't think it would have made that trip that that strategy but it's cool to watch it and cool to watch all the different ways that kind of spears could come out they had that whole scene where they stuck spears out that had like sharpened hooks on them and they were just cutting the ankles of horses yeah. And cutting the ankles. <laughs> guys were running through and it was this like hook would come out and just cut your Achilles tendon. This is not a great horse movie because a lot of them end up going face first into the sand, like by the hundreds. Yeah. Well, or, or after a while, it felt like one of those movies where they had three B-17s and they just shot them from 40 <laughs> angles. It yeah. seems like what he had was four horses that had been trained to fall on their faces and right. yeah. every single battle scene, there was some reason that he needed he needed horses to fall, including the greatest one in the movie where he was like, blind them with light. And they turned their shiny shields around. And apparently bright light is enough to cause a horse to fall on its face. Like that was a great strategy. It was a great strategy, but I don't think it I don't think it actually incapacitates horses in that way. I don't know. I'm not a horseman. It would incapacitate me, but we've already established that I have no battle prowess. Well, you would just stop and put on a different pair of sunglasses. How historical were the high explosives in this film? Because they're like making kind of like clay pot grenade slash Molotov cocktails in in one scene. And I wondered if that was a technique that was already available in like the year 208 or whatever fire and uh and like burning oil was used in war burning oil pitch like they would collect pitch and resin and fat and use it i think throughout the ancient world and of course the chinese were way ahead fire as a praxis of war 
I mean, they talk about that a lot. The because the final the final naval battle really turns on whether or not it's going to be a smart idea to try and set fire to one side or the other's ships, and and they like they there is like a full on like fire theory conversation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we had we had catapults and crossbows and semi-automatic crossbows. It looked like yeah, those were great. But I, I I'm not I'm not well versed enough to be able to say like at this moment did all these technologies collide when you're a a ground troop and the orders are being given out you got to be pretty bummed out when you find out that you're going to be on one of the fire ships right well remember the order was don't jump off the boat until the other ships have burst into flames and it was like hmm right okay <laughs> that seems self-explanatory by that point and occasionally a guy would run through the fire onto the other ship or be thrown that way, right? Right. I read that a uh, stuntman was actually killed filming those scenes. Oof. Yeah. They were conceived at such a scale that it it's that doesn't seem surprising. Like, there's so many ships on fire, and it seems so dangerous to, to do this practically. Right. It's part of what and- made it so exhilarating. And I, and I know that word, uh, <laughs> that might not be the best word to use in a scene in which a stunt person was killed, but that is what a stunt person is there to evoke, is that feeling. Right. And, like, for as many, like, wide shots of digital ships on fire as there are, like, they did really crash a bunch of yeah. wooden boats into each other and light them on fire. Like, it's there's a spectacular amount of practical effects in this film. I love how it shows you what a little bomb does before ramping up to a big one. Like, if all this film ever did was show you the big booms, it would be fun and spectacular. But that scene where they're experimenting with the size of the ordnance and that general is like, bigger, bigger (laughs) still. And then he finally, like, gets the whopper and just stands in the middle of it. I like the ramp up to that. I did, too. Yeah. He turns around and his eyebrows are all burned. He's all like, yes, more. (laughs) <laughs> for a movie that is an epic, and this is a, a foundational epic for the Chinese, and I think we should in a second maybe talk about how it is, <clears throat> how this movie kind of serves a nationalistic purpose. Yeah. But um, but for an epic and for such a large cast, it spends a lot of time in developing the the character of the different people in giving them each a lot of time to kind of breathe and be their own, um, their own characters. There's a a lot of domestic drama that, that doesn't flag the action. Like I, I, a lot of epics like this, when the, when it's, when we're not on the battle scene, we're bored. Right. But all the strategy, all the politics, yeah, Cow Cow also like it. It poses the question: Did, did he do this because he was in love with uh, Jiao Cow? Yeah, and I'm saying yeah, as in I know what you're ta- who you're talking about. Not that that pronunciation's correct. I thought of them as Princess Badass. She's the sister of the Emperor of the South, right? And then there's uh, Princess Tea Ceremony. Yeah, and she's Zhou Zhou Yu's wife. She puts a lot on the line to go. 
essentially distract Cow Cow, but also like Cow Cow is distractible because he's he's human and you know he's not he's not a cartoon villain. He's not Darth Vader. He's a he's a a bad guy that's you know motivated by power and and avarice, but but he has human moments all through the film. He does. He's even likable in his confidence. When his bun gets cut and his his hair is down by his shoulders, like the, I feel like there were like a bunch of cultural language there that I didn't quite know how to decode, but the shame and humiliation of that seemed like everybody was satisfied that that was plenty and that they didn't need to kill him or arrest him even. Right. I, I, I think this movie somewhat was plagued by the fact that everyone was incredibly beautiful. You know, everyone is beautiful in this film, but I think it's their it's their baseline level of charisma that that boosts them up. And I think the only the only character without any charisma is the emperor. And I think that's right. one of the things that that sets him apart from everyone else. Yeah. Like I I think we've seen some films before where everyone was a model and that cuts against them, but I don't think we've ever seen another movie where every single beautiful person was attractive in that charismatic way right even cow cow and could carry the weight of their role whatever that was the the former yeah. pirate crazy general the yeah, Zhang Fei, the guy with just hair like <laughs> his beard hair goes like up into his eyeballs right into so, his ears. he's so hairy <laughs> and he you know his role is the guy that is that is really impulsive and really quick to anger and he is very believable in that role yeah <laughs> And also, like, can pick a guy up on the end of a spear and fling him over his head. <laughs> yeah, the 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 the, uh, the John Woo stuff in this, which is all that sort of def- defiance of physics and gravity. Normally, I I uh, I find it somewhat off-putting, but this had such a legend an imperial legend movie or whatever that 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 kind of uh, crouching tiger hidden dragon stuff didn't bother me at all i thought it was fairly restrained too yeah. it didn't go full crouching tiger either and i think that helped yeah i mean speaking as uh, of it as an imperial legend i do really want to talk about like what this means as a as a, a like statement of patriotism like china has a culture that is in a lot of ways comparable to the US in terms of like you know thinking about itself as like the greatest country and 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 yet there's this other aspect of it that it's also an ancient country and i feel like there's a a very intentional element to this film of like nobody is a traitor in this movie to the emperor nobody that's like breaking away in in their own in their own country is doing it because they're disloyal to the emperor. It's that they're disloyal to Cao Cao, who they see as a usurper. The fact that the Chinese government was involved, provided all the soldiers, and that this was a... Although John Woo is a Hong Kong filmmaker, there was a lot of Chinese involvement. Yeah, and I think it was shot largely in Beijing. Yeah, they're not going to do that if the movie doesn't tell a story that i don't know supports a theory of chinese continuity right there's a this is a patriotic movie ultimately and right. it's it's it 
it there's no outside empire that they're in conflict with it's all it's all kind of elucidating how china became china and these are heroes in their pantheon and they're all portrayed even cow cow the enemy is portrayed as like a person of integrity he's just he's power mad in the wrong way and this is the establishing um war that kind of de- defines the three kingdoms period right we come out of this war and we have the three kingdoms which don't last that long no it's like a few decades and then it's one big country right but the three kingdoms era means a lot in china and outside of the the province of the plot of the movie itself this is a chinese made major motion picture a huge sweeping epic that formerly was only possible if you had Mel Gibson on board or, you know, this is like a Hollywood level picture. And that itself is kind of a, I think when it opened on screens all across Asia, it was, it was a watershed moment. There's the, I mean like the soft power of, of American culture that it spreads all over the world via our films and television and, and, music and you know like our our culture finds its way everywhere via via our 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 create creative works and i feel like there's like a conscious effort in on the part of china to become a competitor in that this is a movie of, of like chinese people making art for chinese people talking about a chinese thing but it has also like been repackaged and and sold elsewhere like this was this had a bigger a bigger opening weekend in south korea than uh the dark knight which it was like up against in the at the box office i wonder like when this movie opened in korea was it dubbed in korean were they also watching it with subtitles like that really affects how you're how you watch a movie and when you're watching a giant epic yeah, this is such a visual film and having to like look down from the sweeping vistas of 1500 guys in costumes running running around hitting each other with swords to like read some dialogue is it does compromise the experience to some extent. All right, we're, we're pretty close to uh, the end here. I can talk about my moment of pedantry because it's the last scene. All right. Oh, interesting. The final scene shows a double rainbow adjacent to the sun. It is impossible to view a rainbow unless the sun is behind you. Ouch. Mm. Fake double rainbow. Oh. All the way across the sky, huh? I was not crazy about that last shot. It just like the most digital looking shot in the film. The the horses kind of riding off and and the fake mountains in the background. I was like, you know, like there are a lot of really spectacularly beautiful places in China that you could get a couple of horses and uh, and a camera to <laughs> just just do that. You don't need to build it in in you know ray tracer three D or whatever. <laughs> I mean the 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 use of digital effects in this movie I did not find off putting. Obviously. There are a lot and a lot, a lot of digital effects, and some of them are quite noticeable. 
but if you're going to yeah. burn uh if you're going to burn 200,000 people alive on an epic flotilla of ships you're better to do that to digital people <laughs> right you're going to you're going to have a hard time doing that in in real time uh but they did build enormous sets like f- yeah. fantastic sets there's a ran level of set building and subsequent destruction in this in this film one of the last scenes is is maybe the most apt example of that that the burning of the fort at the very end and that wide shot depicting it and the people walking away from it like yeah. it seems seems like it's it's pointing finger guns right at ron as an inspiration totally and because it's john woo you know he's using two finger guns because he's john woo <laughs> and he's flying backwards in slow motion uh-huh. i imagine that ron casts such a long shadow over john woo that he's been, you know, wanting to create his own Ron from the beginning. It's review time, guys, which means it's time for me to design a custom rating system for the film we've just discussed. For Red Cliff, there were a lot of interesting strategies and depictions of technology in the film that I thought lent itself to such a review system. And the one that stuck out to me maybe most uh, was the utility of the straw boat flotilla. This idea of a larger army fighting a smaller army and that smaller army having to kind of Rocky Balboa-like absorb as much damage as it can in order to weaken its greater enemy into into losing the battle is something that I can really get with. And I think a lot of my favorite war movies are stories of, of these underdog groups of people against, against legions far larger than theirs. And this straw boat was, and the deployment of the straw boat was so amazing. And like in a different movie, I think it would be absurd, but the way that these sequences were shot and cut together the way that these boats look at the end, the way that they begin to list and then have to turn around to absorb the yeah. next volley in order to They're straighten They're so heavy up. from having so many arrows on one side yeah. that they have to <laughs> balance it out. The porcupinification of them by the end, and then the dawning realization to Cow Cow of what exactly took place in the aftermath. Like The straw boat strategy is one example of a couple depicted in this film of like really really unique uh, strategies that 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 Zhao Yu came up with. And I really love these moments and that one in particular. I think the movie itself, I think one of the best compliments I could give it is that it makes me want to see the longer version. I think we talked a little bit about during the beginning, like we were guessing at what was cut out. And that's hard not to do in a film you know that you're getting only a piece of. There's apparently a whole tiger hunting sequence that's not in there. Yeah, I think that means a lot in, in how much I like it. You never lose the energy of the film when you're not in battle. And I think that also says a lot about its quality. I think not only do you get the strong main characters, but you really get interesting female characters in this film. And I think the the son character particularly... The girl who wants to fight then gets laughed off and then is like actually instrumental 
in their victory, I thought was super interesting. We didn't talk a lot about her. And also, uh, Xiao Yu's wife, like her bravery at walking on over to Cow Cows and making him the tea that ends up, you know, stalling him in time for the winds to change. Like these characters were vital in the success of who ends up winning in the end. And I don't know. I think all of that really adds up to a movie that I liked quite a bit. I am predisposed to liking John Woo films, so I went in thinking that I would enjoy it. That isn't to say that there weren't some things that could probably have been better, but as it was, like, four and a half straw boats. I really like this movie a lot, and I do want to make time to see the full two-part version. It should be seen. Go and see it. I think it's only available on DVD, but it's out there somewhere. I have a video store in my neighborhood. I'm going to I'm gonna go get it. Weird. Hmm. That is weird. My review or, or the last video store in Seattle? The fact that you Both. have a DVD player and are prepared to go rent a DVD and watch it yeah. in two parts is weird. Yes. So says John Roderick, the tub man. <laughs> yeah, I watched this film on my phone in the tub. Way to so, criticize how I watch a film. I watched this movie on my phone at a stoplight. <laughs> the way John Woo intended. How many boats, guys? I think I, I might differ from you in the willingness or curiosities to see the full I think it's a 140 minutes that are cut out of mm-hmm. of the two-parter to make the one-parter. <laughs> they cut out an entire platoon. <laughs> yeah. But I'm really glad I saw it. A, a movie about a time as far back in the past about a culture as different as this has a lot of interesting challenges to make. And one of those is just that like the society it's depicting is almost unimaginable to us. Mm-hmm. Like one one element of this movie is that um, Kan Ming like convinces Zhou Yo to uh, to be, become involved in the conflict via a duet. Yeah, and the music that they play is so weird, and like I, I I've never heard any music like it. It's very like atonal and percussive, even though they're playing it on a stringed instrument. The dueling Gaqueen scene. Between the two was awesome. It almost seemed like a joke at first. (laughs) Like, these are a a set of sounds that I feel like I could probably make if I sat down to this instrument. Like, it, it it just seemed like so surprising and different from what I was expecting. And I felt like that was the one nod to, like, how, how fundamentally different this society must have been. But yet, like, John Woo knows to make a movie that is fun to watch. And he knows how to achieve that and he achieves that here and for as an example of a war movie that is like almost perfectly suited to this podcast i think this uh this is right up there because you get all of the like battle tactics and strategy and you get to you get to see it executed you get to see like where some of those ideas fail uh and uh it's uh all told just like a really well put together piece um so i'll give it i'll give it four boats four boats four boats the old four boats yeah i was uh extremely confused by the music they were playing on those instruments right like there's no recordings of ancient music so it's hard to know what they might even be basing that on 
made me yearn for more. I mean, that's definitely not, if you see somebody playing one of those out in the world now, they're not doing that. Zhuge Long does that awesome thing where he's like, I haven't played in a long time. Like, <laughs> I don't know if I'm gonna, and then he plugs in and just like shreds. <laughs> well, I am not, all, I do not go into John Woo movies super predisposed to them. I was worried that this was gonna be like a Falun Gong ballet a little bit in the in like the pinks and purples you thought you were going to be the only person that has ever attended a, a performance of shen yun <laughs> you see posters for it in pretty much every coffee shop <laughs> that's right yeah get your tickets now only 80 dollars. and the opening few scenes of the movie didn't dispel that fear there's a lot there's a lot going on we're introduced to a lot of characters right away some of them are given what appear to be superpowers of fighting and jumping. And, uh, and it didn't look like there was going to be a lot of plot. You know, the first, the first 20 minutes of the movie, I was sort of like, Oh, is this just going to be like a, uh, I don't know, a karate movie. Yeah. But then the movie really settled into, I think, a an enjoyable and admirable pace they covered a lot of ground. There were huge set pieces. And I think most importantly, we were cut in on the strategy and the strategy sessions of every one of these set pieces. So they weren't, you know, the, they weren't given to us as a uh, fait accompli. Like Adam said, that scene where, where they were throwing firebombs at a rock wall, testing them out. <laughs> um, you know, the knowledge that we gained in that moment helped us later where you're wondering now exactly how is this all happening? And then you're like, right, the firebombs like, and the movie did that for us many times, but it never felt pedantic. It always, yeah. because the training sequences and the strategy sessions were interesting in and of themselves. Uh, and so this this is a this is a great example of a of a war movie that is not that doesn't star William Holden <laughs> but is like i i think you watch this movie you you're inspired to learn more about the history of China you're inspired to um just sort of appreciate the quality of the films that are being made now in Asia um that Acting was, I thought, above bar, and um, and I was just really taken by the charisma of of almost everybody on screen. I mean, I think this movie would have been a lot more boring if the acting was more wooden, mm -hmm. and that's not always true. I mean, we watch some movies that are really good, and the acting is wooden, but there's just so much to take in here, and you have to end up caring about the people you're watching and you do care about them. And so uh, it's, it's a long movie and I was, I was watching it late at night, but my attention never flagged. Um, and, the, and my complaints about the, about the digital stuff and some of the, the lack of geography. I mean, I feel like some of the lack of geography may be, accounted for in the two hours and 20 minutes they cut out. Maybe some of that was like some, some more detailed map work. 
<laughs> you can you can forgive them, you know. The maps in this film were super detailed, like as as physical documents. Holy yeah. shit. Really cool. I thought they were amazing. And the models and stuff. Yeah, I wanted the camera to linger on them a little bit longer, to be honest. Yeah, that, those are big fun. And maybe if the Chinese characters on the maps had had little tiny uh, English translations, it would have helped me a little bit more. Yeah. But, but you know, the, the, the site of the Battle of Red Bluff, I'm sorry to digress right here, but the, the actual site of the real battle is something that's, that's really contended in China. Um, yeah. they, they know it happened somewhere around the confluence of the Han and the, and the Yangtze River. Yeah, can't they just kind of walk up and down and go, oh yeah, that, that one cliff is pretty much red. They should look for the soot. They've tried to do it, but, you know, in the 1700 intervening years, the course of both rivers have changed. There is a cliff that has giant inscriptions carved in it that are a thousand years old. But, of course, those inscriptions were carved in it 700 years after the battle. So for this entire time, for almost two millennia, people have been... People in China have been claiming this is the site of the battle. And then they erect a little hut and they start selling Red Cliff hats and T-shirts. Right. It's like being the barbecue restaurant that the uh, that the piano scene from Top Gun took place in. <laughs> right. One day, a thousand years from now, there will be 50 cats delis on the Lower East Side. And they will all have a sign that says, here's the here's where the scene like from the original <laughs> Jewish. <laughs> but but uh, but so so some of that map stuff must have been kind of obfuscated so as not to. Uh, like plant any one particular flag on any one of the seven towns that claim to be the site of the battle. Anyway, I really liked the film. I think it's absolutely a four flaming straw boat movie. They were lucky that they did not shoot flaming arrows at those straw boats. Yeah, let holy me tell shit. you. Oh, that would have really <laughs> changed the game, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, but I feel, you know, and I feel almost inclined to kind of go even a little higher than four flaming straw boats. Let's say four arrow gathering straw boats. And then there was that one little weird one. The one the, that got away. The one that got away that they that they sent in order. They didn't it didn't get away. They sent it, I think, to to show because part of gathering those arrows that was, was the to, fuck you boat, right? It was the fuck you boat. They were trying to discourage the enemy. <laughs> That's my favorite Wolfgang Peterson film the fuck you boat yeah so i'm gonna give it four arrow laden straw decoy boats and one little teeny fuck you boat all right strong scores all around but do you have a strong guy john right at the end of the movie when they're all confronting cow cow at the gates of his castle we've gone largely we've gone at least between two and five hours into this movie without ever seeing (laughs) his signature uh mexican standoff right and we finally get it at the end it's a it's harder to do with swords they call it a taiwanese standoff in china i guess they must just whatever country's south of you (laughs) we we have two swords a spear a bow and arrow 
and someone dangling the princess off the balcony are all in yeah. play here in this. And uh, and it's a it's a tense scene that's made more tense by the fact that Cow Cow ha- is still kind of making a reasonable case that actually they should surrender to him. Yeah. Um, and they're all sort of He's considering still got a lot it. of guys. <laughs> yeah. And they're kind of like, hmm, yes, but no. <laughs> but standing there with this group is is a man who is clearly a general also, who has a very long beard and is, a, again, a very beautiful man, almost to the point of being like, like legendary. Uh, he has the signature sort of angry eyebrows. He looks like the uh, he looks like the guy in the Oak Ridge Boys, who wears a really long beard, even though the other guys are look like uh, members only jacket salesmen. It's a guy that I don't remember having seen before in the film. Anyway, he's he just appears out of nowhere, and in this final scene, he kind of plays. They cut to him for a reaction shot several times. He's on screen more than you would think if he was just a background actor. And I don't know. Maybe he's got a big part in the longer version. Yeah, it might be. It might be that his whole, his whole part of the movie kind of got cut out. Um, But anyway, he was just standing there kind of, he's tall. He's taller than, than uh, your average general in this movie. And he just has this like Gandolfian vibe. (laughs) <laughs> and in a in a movie with with a cast of 2000 people he jumped out of the screen at me for his he he just had that combination of he looked fierce he looked calm and i wanted to see a movie about him what has he been doing this whole time so maybe i do need to go over to adams we'll rent the dvd all right we'll get some thai food we'll spend four hours with adam's wife kind of walking into the room with really strong heels <laughs> Clop, 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 clop. How's your movie? Clop, 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 clop. Super mad that he and I are down there. Didn't you already watch this movie? Clop, clop, clop. Well, it's like Mr. Rogers said, uh, look for the Gandalfs in any John Woo film. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good guy, though, John. Uh, My guy is the... uh, This poor messenger sent from the Southlands. I don't think he knows he's carrying a blank scroll. No. Oh, and when guy. that is unfurled and you see the look on the messenger's face and he knows. Why did they even ask me to do this? <laughs> He's like, we know that there's dove technology. A dove could have transported this blank scroll and saved my head. Yeah. <laughs> like That's kind of a dick move. That moment sucks. And I think I think we've all been there. The the moment where you realize that you are the messenger and the messenger is going to get shot. That's tough. And so that's what makes the messenger my guy. What about you, Ben? Uh speaking of General Gone, in the scene where they're attacking the wall 
there's a guy that gets hit in the leg with an arrow, and General Gunn like runs out and and grabs him and is dragging him to safety. And <laughs> in dragging him to safety, kind of presents this guy as a further target for the archers, and he gets hit with like seventeen more arrows. Oh man! <laughs> Seemed like the only dude that was ever drugged to safety in this whole movie, or dragged yeah. to safety. That guy got totally pin cushioned. Yeah, that, that was. Uh, he's probably like, thanks, dude. Thank you, because I was uh, definitely. Definitely not going to get hit with those other arrows if I had just lied here. <laughs> wow. So uh, that was, uh, I just kind of figure that's kind of how I feel most of the time, right? <laughs> I guess we do have to pick the next movie. You guys don't have a die there. I ordered one, but it hasn't come yet. I have oh, okay. a 120 sided. I have my special die right here. Okay. You want to, you want to give it a roll? Yeah, here we go. Ready? <laughs> Whew. It came up 100. No shit. It came right <laughs> up on top 100. Uh, well, that gets us uh, back to World War II, the warm embrace of World War II. This is a 1982 film directed by Paolo and Vittorio Taviani. Hey. Set in Italy. It's called The Night of the Shooting Stars. Hmm. Never heard of it. Well, you added it to the list. So. <laughs> oh, good. Of uh, course. Uh, let me let me let me take another take at that, Rob. Oh, The uh, Night of the Shooting Stars. The Night of San Lorenzo is the night when dreams come true in Italian folklore. Wow. So this is this is going to be a a lighthearted romp of a war film. I hope so. Well, this is this will be our second uh, our second uh, movie in a row that is subtitled. Going to be doing a lot more reading. We're a gentlemen. very very sophisticated podcast that watches war movies across the entire genre. Yeah. I don't want to brag or anything, but I do read at an eighth grade level. <laughs> if you're if you're listening to this show, you are smart, and uh, this show flatters you. Yeah. With how smart you are to listen. Mm. Wow, the poster of this movie is fucking brutal. It's a a man with about 15 spears in his chest, much like my guy in the movie we just re- finished reviewing. <laughs> Leaned over backward in a uh, in a uh, grassy like a, a field of dry grass. He's more spear than body in that nice. pose. Talking about pin cushions. All right. Well, hmm. that'll be next week. We'll leave it with Rob's, 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 Rob's from here. So for John Broderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. It's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr. And it's courtesy of Stone Agate Music. Our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. If you'd like to support the show, head on over to MaximumFun.org slash donate. This will get you access to our pork chop feed, which is for supporters only, as well as access to all of the Maximum Fun bonus content. You could also leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcatcher, or share the show with a friend. When tweeting about the show, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR. Adam is at CutForTime. 
John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks. We'll see you next week. You know where else you can find out about the fall of Han? Little film called The Force Awakens. Right? MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.